Minnesota native Heidi Stefanish and Piper returned to space this week aboard the space shuttle Endeavour. She's one of the crew members who will be walking in space and helping to repair the uh, space station. What kind of weather will Heidi be walking in? And how does space weather affect the weather on Earth? We'll find out from Bill Murtaugh from NOAA's Space Weather Prediction Center. And you're not the only one who's worried about the winter weather to come. Your car is ready to make its needs known, too. Pete Fritz of St. Paul's Park Service tells us how to keep your car running happy, even in the worst stuff Mother Nature can come up with. No matter what the weather, we're clear and sunny here on Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Why? That was nice music. Hello once again, weather fans. I'm Kathy Warzer, host of Minnesota Public Radio's Morning Edition program. Paul Hutner is on assignment, but we're here in studio with University of Minnesota meteorologist and climatologist Dr. Mark Seeley and Minnesota Public Radio's own meteorologist Craig Edwards. How are you guys? Doing fine, Kathy. Sounds like a good show coming up today. Yes. Yeah, good to be with you today, Kathy. Likewise. Thank you for being here. Weather headlines to kick things off. Of course, uh, fierce Santa Ana winds in California. My goodness, they have fanned firestorms across California doing a, a lot of damage. The video, of course, is amazing to watch. In an anniversary this week, on November 16th, 1959, I bet Mark remembers this, the low temperature at Lincoln, Montana, fell to 53 degrees below zero. 53 degrees below zero. That's the air temperature. That was the coldest temperature ever recorded in the continental United States during the month of November. Boy, you don't usually associate temperatures like that with the month of November. That's no, you for don't. Sure. That's not that's not attractive. 53 below, pretty cold, but not as cold as the depths of space. And even without an atmosphere, space does have its own kind of weather that astronauts have to deal with. Bill Murtaugh of NOAA's Space Weather Prediction Center is here to tell us about how their office keeps up with celestial weather tracking. Bill, welcome to Jet Streaming. How are you? Very good, Kathy. Good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Say, what does the Space Weather Prediction Center do every day? Well, our, our role is, um, and it's unique, we're actually now part of the National Weather Service. We're one of the national centers for environmental prediction, just like the Hurricane Center or the Storm Prediction Center in Norman. But the Space Weather Prediction Center is not worried about tornadoes or hurricanes or blizzards. We're actually worried about weather in space. So we're looking at radiation storms, geomagnetic storms, and solar flares, and how those types of phenomena will influence technology, whether it be on the ground here on Earth or in space. Wow. Okay. So let's give me an example here of a geomagnetic storm. How powerful would something like that be? Geomagnetic storm is actually occurs when we see a large eruption on the sun, a solar flare. Uh, typically, we'll see what's called a coronal mass ejection, which is billions of tons of plasma gas moving at several million miles per hour heading towards the Earth. And then when it hits the Earth's magnetic field, there's an interaction because the cloud, that cloud of plasma that left the sun has its own magnetic field, hits the Earth's magnetic field, and you get a geomagnetic storm. And when that happens, it can actually induce electrical current that will flow through the ground and right up into power transformers and the electric power grid and cause potentially significant problems. Back in March of 1989, one of these geomagnetic storms knocked out the power grid in Montreal and Quebec for about nine hours, affecting six million people. Uh, Bill, uh, as a follow-up to what you just said, I noted that the uh, 
European Space Weather uh, Group is meeting, in fact, this very week in Belgium. Right. And uh, I assume you probably have representatives there, but one of the featured items on their agenda for this week is a discussion of situational space weather. Does that relate to what you just referred to, or is there something more involved there? It, no, it, it does. The, the, this term, space situational awareness, is, uh, is, is becoming more and more of an important issue. And it's essentially the space weather, the space environment, is one component of space situational awareness. It's essentially understanding the environment that our spacecraft are operating in and what can be influencing the spacecraft, whether it's uh, jamming or man-made devices or the environment. So can I ask you then, uh, when it comes to the Space Shuttle Endeavor, which is, of course, up in the atmosphere right now, and there's a, one of our own, St. Paul native uh, Heidi Marie Stephanishan Piper. She's one of the chief spacewalkers, and she just did a spacewalk yesterday and, and had uh, some issues, but she's fine, and so is her colleague. My question here is, what kind of weather does she have to worry about outside the shuttle? Yeah, it's, the, it's interesting. Every day... Uh, Year-round, we actually coordinate from here at the Space Weather Center with the NASA uh, Mission Control at Johnson Space Center for this very issue because the International Space Station has been manned for um, almost 10 years now. But it's a particular concern when the astronauts are on an EVA or a spacewalk, EVA extra vehicular activity, because the spacesuits provide less protection than the shielding of the spacecraft itself to solar radiation storms. So we will, as was the case this morning, uh, coordinate with the uh, Johnson Space Center. There's a group down there called the Space Radiation Analysis Group. They work closely with mission control, and we'll be looking closely at the environment to make sure when Heidi Marie goes out and does her spacewalk, as was the case yesterday and the next one coming up in the next day or so, we want to make sure the radiation environment is is low enough so it won't cause any significant problem for her or for the other astronauts. This is Craig Edwards. I've worked for NOAA for 34 years, and I'm trying to piece this all together about space weather. And uh, as you and I know, NOAA is great on writing st- strategic plans and and goals and initiatives. Where do you see space weather going in the next 10 years to add value? If taxpayers are supporting space weather exploration, where is the value for the taxpayer in this type of endeavor? Yeah, it's a very good question, Craig, because it's. You know, back 10, 15 years ago, those space weather did affect systems such as the power grid and certain communications. It wasn't near as important as it is today uh, from an operational sense. Today, we rely so much on advanced technologies for so many different aspects in, in our daily, day-to-day living. Uh, and, and, of course, so much of it is space-based satellites and GPS systems. Uh, various communication systems, all these type of uh, technology, types of technology are affected by space weather. So to ensure you, you, that folks out there can have continuous communications using cell phones and, and have high-precision GPS measurements, which have been used in so many different uh, applications these days, our job here at the Space Weather Center is to provide alerts and warnings of changing conditions that could influence the behavior of these these types of technology we so re- rely on. 
so that certain actions can be taken by customers or by the uh, operators of those spacecraft to make sure that they work continuously. Well, that, that's a good point because one of the goals of the Weather Service is to give people advanced information to take precautionary measures. Now, what I'd like to ask you is what sort of precautionary measures can people take from magnetic storms because they're really uh, at, at what the discretion of the technology and what happens with the technology, like you talked about the satellites and the GPS systems. Is there ways to protect those systems uh, well, really, when you yeah. see a storm? For instance, I use the power grid as an example because certainly up in Minnesota, uh, power groups up in the Great Lakes region are uh, very aware of the impact of geom- potential impact of geomagnetic storms on their systems. When that uh, coronal mass ejection leaves the sun, it is traveling very fast, several million miles an hour, I mentioned. However, that still it has to make that 93 million mile track to Earth, so it's going to take a day up to three days before it gets here. So we can advise the power grid that something very large is coming our way and the potential for a very large geomagnetic storm. And depending on the um, power grid and and its location, whether it's New England, Great Lakes versus Southern California, each one of the groups have actions in place, standard operating procedures that they will follow to make sure they maintain the stability of the grid. And it could be anything from delaying uh, maintenance to take systems offline, bring them back online, have extra people on duty to handle the the influences and whatnot. So the power grid is just one example, but all those other groups I mentioned, GPS, uh, satellites, communications, even aviators flying over the polar regions will reroute flights away from the poles during these big solar storms if, the, if we can provide a prediction of the activity, which we do. Uh, Bill, uh, uh, on an everyday uh, application here, uh, what if I'm up in the Boundary Waters canoe area with my handheld GPS system? Uh, is space weather actually going to induce any significant errors for me, or do I trust my GPS system? The, it actually can produce uh, significant problems, and it does depend on the GPS system, because some GPS systems using dual frequency uh, can be strong, robust systems that are less affected by space weather. But we have, in fact, seen errors up to about 100 meters was recorded back in October of 2003. Uh, That's very significant for certain users, obviously. We work closely with, uh, for instance, deep-sea oil drilling companies like British Petroleum or Schlumberger or Santa Fe Petroleum, and they're relying on their GPS system for down to almost centimeter accuracy. So for some people, it could be very significant. But yes, you out in your canoe, using, relying on your GPS, if we have one of those big storms, your GPS could be off uh, by quite a bit. So obviously um, 100 meters, so several hundred feet. Bill, getting back, a final question here to our astronauts up in space right now and and Heidi Marie and the rest of her team. Um, When you do the forecast, as it were, and you're talking to Johnson Space Center, I know you're looking at radiation, but you're also looking at things like space junk, uh, things flying by these astronauts if they're going to be out there doing a spacewalk. Do you have things that you worry about, say, like a jet stream, as it were, up there that could bring some of this stuff close to the space shuttle? You know, we actually do not look at that. Our friends down in the uh, DOD in, in um, Cheyenne Mountain monitor the, the space junk. We really have, uh, we, we do work on doing assessments of the environment that that space junk is traveling in, uh, orbiting in 
to understand what over what kind of drag effects we might see on that on those pieces of junk but uh, other than that we really don't monitor it okay Bill, I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. It was fun. Bill Murtaugh is with NOAA's Space Weather Prediction Center here on Jet Streaming. <laughs> oh, all right. We've heard this sound at one time or another, especially the Wurzer Mobile. <laughs> Not wanting to turn over. You know what happens. It's 20 below. You have to get somewhere. And your car says, nope. I am not going anywhere, and you cannot make me. That's what the car says. But there are ways to get your car prepared before the frigid days of winter hit, and Pete Fritz of Park Service in St. Paul is here to give us some tips on how to make this sound a distant memory. Pete, welcome to Jet Streaming. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good to be here. Likewise. Thanks for being with us. Okay, let's run down some of the things that we should have a professional mechanic do to get the car ready for winter. Well, obviously, you're going to want to have that battery checked. Um, check the tires, um, the wipers, the coolant, you know, the antifreeze to make sure that it's capable of surviving a Minnesota winter. Uh, the lights, um, the spark plugs, when you're hearing the car turn over like that and it's not firing, it's usually indicative of another problem, um, such as spark plugs or um, an ignition problem. Oh, so not, the, not necessarily the battery, huh? No, if it's turning over, it's not the battery. Okay. So the battery does need a certain amount of voltage to turn the starter over, but um, if it is turning over, it's not the battery. In all likelihood. Say, Pete, as we migrate into winter, of course, we get more frozen precipitation. Mm -hmm. What about wiper blades? Are you a fan of these winter, uh, you know, the winter blades? Boy, i got to get something on my car. I don't use them myself. Um, I know people who do swear by them, and they do work at keeping the snow off the frame. Um, They do offer frameless wiper blades, and that's what I use on my my trucks and uh, put them on my family's vehicles also. Um, they are a little bit more expensive. Um, but what what happens is with a regular wiper blade, there's a metal frame, and the snow ends up sticking to that frame, and it continues to snowball until there's a huge ball of snow on there and you're not getting any coverage on the windshield. Um, and those winter blades do prevent that from happening. So they do work. Um, they also work in the summer. You, they really shouldn't be called winter blades per se, because uh, you can use them year-round in any condition. But, uh, yeah, they do work. This is Craig Edwards, and I'd like to reminisce a little bit about the days when I had these cars where you could lift up the hood and open the carburetor up and spray the ether in there and a little car starting thing. And then you also had this thing called heat where you could dump it into your gas tank. Right, isopropyl. Yeah, so all of that is history now. So we're moving on. So anytime there's something wrong with your cars, you pretty much pick up the phone and call somebody. You don't start looking under the hood. Is that correct? Well, in in, um, temperatures where... Um, it's affecting the running of the vehicle. Yeah, it's probably better just to call somebody rather than stand out in 40 uh, below weather and trying to troubleshoot it yourself. Um, we still do recommend isopropyl for the really, really cold days. Oh, okay. Especially on some of the older vehicles. Um, gasoline today does have more additives that does help um, the fuel not freeze and not gel up, but it still does happen. Well, I've got three cans of that sitting in my garage that I haven't used for about five years. Is there a shelf life on that, or can I put that on eBay and... And uh, sell that for twenty nine cents. You could uh, either use it or put it on eBay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, when, when's it best to use heat in your car? Well, if you know it's going to get cold, say you know it's a it's a Wednesday, and you know it's going to get to you know thirty forty below on on Saturday, and you have a half a tank of gas, and you don't really plan on driving a lot, uh, put go to the gas station, put the heat in, and fill the tank up, and you should be good to go. You, it's better to put it in before you fill the tank. 
because then oh. that actually is going to mix it around in the gas. If you if you uh, if you put it in um, after you fill it, you you run the chance of actually having like a little concentration of the isopropyl. It's not going to mix as well. Okay, so you really can't take your car and shake it up. So you really want to shake this? <laughs> well, you could, but I don't know if I'd recommend doing that. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Say, <laughs> so what's the proper way to start a car in winter? Well, with most modern vehicles, the same way you start it in the summer. Okay. Um, the computer's going to control the amount of fuel that's going to get into the uh, cylinders from the injectors. Um, now, with the cars that are a little bit before my time, it might be a different story like the ones my father and my grandfather drove. But um, modern cars are pretty good at handling um, the extreme temperatures on either end, the cold or the warm. Say, Pete, I've got a few questions on snow tires. Sure. With, with the number of vehicles now that are front-wheel drive, right. Are snow tires uh, as important to have on in the winter as they used to be? Well, you know, that depends on when you're going to drive. Um, when I had a front-wheel drive vehicle, I had a Ford Focus. I had snow tires on the front only. And that was because I was, I was driving before the snow plows were coming out. And it was, it was important for me to be able to get through the snow, um, you know, to get through streets that hadn't been plowed yet. Um, it definitely is a, an added safety bonus to have snow tires on there because they are going to provide more grip for you, especially in the colder weather. And one follow-up, Pete. I have some friends in St. Anthony Park, mm-hmm. uh, for example, who have these small vehicles that come uh, stocked with these wimpy, teeny little spare tires, right. you know, the temporary one. that you And they, it makes them so nervous right. to, be, to be having that as a contingency for the winter, that what they do is they actually go out and buy a fifth snow tire right? and haul that around as their spare. Do not you, a bad idea. That's a good idea? Right. Okay. You know, it's not a, it, you, to some people that might be overkill, but that's actually, if, you, if you're worried about that and that's actually on your mind, that's not a bad idea to do. Not, not at all. I heard a story that, and you, I hope you can verify this or not, but they said that more batteries go dead in the summertime than they do in the wintertime. Is that just coincidence or is that really something to that well you know it, it's it's the heat the heat will get to the battery um more than the cold will but what happens is um the, the extreme cold tends to exa- exacerbate problems you know like it, for example if you've been filling a tire say you know your right rear tire for the last few months every week you've been putting a few pounds in it when we get that really cold weather chances are you're going to come out and it's flat um the same can be held true with that with batteries you know, you're not going to necessarily notice that it's not kicking out exactly what it's supposed to on startup, but the car knows and the battery knows, and when it hits that extreme, um, it's definitely going to falter. As for um, having more problems um, in the summer versus winter, you know, I can't, I can't honestly answer that question. Okay. Here's a question for you in reference to uh, um, those of us who have cars that um, <clears throat> burn oil and we don't really wish to fix that problem. Right. Um, if I keep adding oil during the winter, same thing as summer, that should be fine. And what kind of weight oil do you use? Normally, we just recommend whatever um, the manufacturer recommends. In most, in most cases these days, that's either a 530 weight or a 520 weight, which is plenty thin to, uh, to provide adequate lubrication on startup and not, 
not just sit there at the bottom of the oil pump. Oh, okay. Yeah, so but, especially the 520, because that's a, that's a lighter weight oil. So. so I'm kind of hoping that winter will just kind of congeal the oil and make it you know sit there a little bit longer instead right. of blowing it out the back. So, so it doesn't burn off as fast? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, probably not. Huh? <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> well, what do you think of these in-car heaters where they used to plug a dipstick into the car? And, yeah, uh, it, I still do that. Okay, so I, you plug I your car in? I do that myself, and my truck uh, came out of the factory with one. Oh. Um, you know, normally it's just easier for the vehicle to start, hmm. and it's really not, you know, I just pull up to my garage and plug it in, unplug it when I leave. You, you, you just got to remember to unplug it when you leave. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. that. You'll you know, know, you'll know soon if you haven't unplugged it, I think. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, Pete, good job. We uh, we have learned something today. Well, thank you. Uh, it was a very uh, enlightening experience. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Mostly for us instead of poor Pete. Pete, thanks so much. You're welcome. Pete Fritz is with Park Service based in St. Paul. St. Anthony Park area of St. Paul. Is That's that correct? Right. All right. Yeah, there's that There's that sound again. I'm still hoping I can hear that sound somewhere along the line. I have to probably go to Florida now to hear it uh, for the next few uh, months. But anyway, let's talk about the website of the week. Friends, which one is Who wants to take this one? Well, I stumbled across a good one uh, the other day, and I, I'd like to share this with – and I think it's something that's for educational purposes. School teachers might want to plug into this and maybe give some tests from some of the stuff they find on this site. It's called EOEarth. Dot org And I guess that means encyclopedia of earth.org. So it's eoearth.org. Very simple site and a lot of good stuff on it from what I saw, but I haven't been through the whole site. So if people want to explore that. I think it'll be uh, be good information on that site. Oh, good. Okay. And then uh, you have a second one, don't you, Mark? No, I don't. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I have sorry. I have written down. Oh, no, that's my writing. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, there's the NOAA Space Weather Today page you might want to oh. check out. Clearly, I am leaking oil here along with my car. (laughs) 5W20. There you go. Actually, or 5W30, I guess. Uh, That is www.swpc.noaa.gov slash index. We'll put that up on our website for you because that's just too complicated. But the NOAA Space Weather Today page is also kind of cool to look at as well. No listener feedback this week. Shucks. That's too bad. But you can always send us a comment or a question by going to minnesotapublicradio.org, go to the Jet Streaming web page. Well, I did have some feedback. I was out at a conference oh. yesterday, and people said they loved to hear the show Jet Streaming. A lot of fans out there, so they may not be communicating that okay. to us by email, uh, but I'm hearing it in person. So people okay. are enjoying this. The, what we're producing here it's, at the NPR. It's a latent, a latent affection yeah, for us. It is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But at least they, at least they made a comment to you. We about know that. it. We know Good. the affection is out there. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Okay. So if if you are if you're uh, want to tell us that in person, you can do it by going to minnesotapublicradio.org. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Kathy. I think the theme of the show this week, we should all give a little love and attention to our cars. Yeah. Exactly. A little warm hug. And and also uh, think of our astronauts up there in space as they are floating around up there. That's it for Jet Streaming this week. For Mark, Craig, Paul, and producers Jim Bickle and P. Ray Rudolph, and of course our sound guy, Scooter Hipzinski, I'm Kathy Warzer. Thanks for listening. And remember... To keep an ear here to Jet Streaming and your weather eye on the sky.